from Port Allegheny to Connellsville, Beaver Falls to Gettysburg, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, it's called Better PA 23, a policy agenda for moving Pennsylvania forward as a new governor and legislature takes office. Carl Marrera is joined by Rebecca Euler and Stephen Bloom for a Capital Watch roundtable discussion. And it should be teaching actual history, but the Montpelier home of James Madison has gone woke. I'll have a town hall commentary on why that is a national disgrace. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capital Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. Revenues from the Pennsylvania School District property tax have climbed steadily since 2011, but the rate of that growth has declined since 2017. Now, before you get too excited, that is about to change. The Center Square cites statistics from the Independent Fiscal Office showing school districts collected about $15.7 billion in fiscal year 2020-2021. That is up from $14.8 billion the year before. The report concludes collections would have been higher, but for the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, when many districts held the line on tax rates. But that is now likely to change. The IFO is now projecting school district property tax revenue growth to escalate from 2.5% over the past few years to 4% over the next five years and almost 5% growth by 2025. Unemployment compensation fraud remains a significant problem in Penn's Woods, with about $6 billion in unemployment fraud having been committed in 2020 and 2021. Of that, only about $1.1 billion has been recovered. The Center Square reports the fraud has occurred in both the state's traditional unemployment program and in the temporary benefits offered during the pandemic. Nationwide, unemployment compensation fraud is estimated to have cost taxpayers some $163 billion. Prospects for general election debates between the Republican and Democratic candidates for open seats for governor and U.S. senator remain up in the air. Dr. Mehmet Oz, the Republican nominee for U.S. senator, has agreed to five debates. So far, his Democratic challenger, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, has not agreed to any. State Senator Doug Mastriano is the Republican nominee for governor. He has called for two debates, but with stipulations designed to give both candidates a level playing field. The reaction from his Democratic opponent, Attorney General Josh Sapiro, was not positive, leaving the fate of the debates for both offices uncertain. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. The Commonwealth Foundation has developed a set of policy goals for the new gubernatorial administration and legislature that will take office in January. Our Capital Watch crew is here to discuss Better PA 2023. Carl Marrera from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and by Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. Carl? Welcome to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, Carl A. Marrera. 
Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, sitting in for your regular host, David N. Taylor. I'm flanked by my good friends, Rebecca Euler, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here, Carl. And the Honorable Steve Bloom, Vice President at the Commonwealth Foundation. Steve, thanks for your contributions to Capital Watch, as always. Thank you. Happy to be here, Carl. Well, this week we're going to highlight a policy platform recently released by the Commonwealth Foundation. And Steve, you're going to walk us through the finer details of this comprehensive plan. The title of the plan is How to Create a Better Pennsylvania in 2023. And the focus is uh, to usher in a new prosperity for Pennsylvania. So take us back to the beginning of these publications, Steve. How was this conceptualized and where did it all start? Well, our policy experts at the Commonwealth Foundation, we are Pennsylvania's free market think tank, and we're always thinking about how can we take action that's realistic, that can actually make a difference, that will make Pennsylvania a better place, a more prosperous place, a place where everybody has a shot to succeed. And we thought about entering into the year 2023 with a new I had a new governor coming in because of the, the retirement or the, um, the term ending for current Governor Wolf, uh, the election of new legislative uh, majorities in both the House and Senate. Uh, we, we thought this is an opportunity to look at the year 2023 and think about what could we do to actually transform Pennsylvania, 23 ways we could take action in this state that would truly transform our state and make it a better place for all of for us, our kids and our grandkids, a place where we can compete with other states effectively. And so that's kind of the genesis of this Better Pennsylvania in 2023 plan. And we, we just set out to what can we do to make this realistic, viable, and genuinely make that kind of transformative change in our economy. Well, I mean, I think people are paying attention and people want something different. And I mean, Rebecca, uh, the, the Commonwealth Foundation conducted a poll back in May of 22 um, right after the primary election. And we've kind of seen this in election results after election results in the recent past. And what they found was that 68% of the respondents said that things in Pennsylvania have, quote, pretty seriously gotten off on the wrong track. In talking with your membership, and, and really, I mean, maybe just your family, friends, the people close to you, I mean, do you think this number would track in, in your industry and with the people that you generally interact with? What's your sense of the general attitude towards Pennsylvania state government out there right now? Yeah, I'd say definitely with our members and uh, with the business community in general, um, there are certain trends that make Pennsylvania uh, a pretty uncompetitive state to do business in. And particularly for small businesses, which 97% of trucking companies are. So those are most of my members, um, particularly for small businesses. So um, the things that really make Pennsylvania uncompetitive, I, I think of the cost of energy, um, just generally, but in truckers' case, we're, we're talking about mostly diesel. Um, and back in May, when the survey was taken, diesel was at record highs. So uh, Pennsylvania has the highest diesel tax in the country. So that's one. Um, I also think of the environment here in Pennsylvania for taxes and fees. Generally, we are higher than most states in a lot of areas for taxes and fees. We're one of the highest states uh, for corporate net income tax, as we know. But even with other fees that affect uh, trucking companies, for example, we are one of the highest states for uh, truck registra registrations in the country. So even simple fees like that, we are uh, uncompetitive for. So um, 
And just recently, you know, PennDOT was talking about um, tolling interstate bridges. So uh, that would affect everybody who travels in, in the state. So those types of things um, that were, you know, at their height back in May when the survey was taken, thankfully, we've uh, put an end to that bridge tolling issue. But there are still a lot of there's a lot of work we have to do to make Pennsylvania more competitive. Well, Steve, I think it's safe to say, I mean, thank you for for you and your team for putting this report together, because obviously, both statistically and kind of anecdotally, I think Pennsylvanians are ready to see a plan put together to put them on a more prosperous path. And your report is split into six main sections, being the, the first, uh, excellent education for all, unleash a more prosperous Pennsylvania, protect the dignity of work, make government more accountable and transparent, prioritize for safer communities, and restore public sector workers' rights. Let's go through each one of those, starting with excellent education for all. So, I mean, Tom Wolf campaigned on, quote, schools that teach, unquote, but are they teaching the right things? And, I mean, quite honestly, uh, has he successfully accomplished that campaign talking point? What are some key takeaways from this section of your policy recommendations and in your research? Thank you for that question, Carl. And if you look at the legacy of Tom Wolf after almost eight years of of him being the governor of Pennsylvania, he did come in on those promises of, of creating schools that teach. And he also came in to office as an uh, an opponent or an adversary to school choice. He was against expanding the tax credit scholarship programs. He's against expanding the charter schools and cyber charter schools in Pennsylvania. And he's very much in, in favor of maintaining the status quo. Now, if you look at Pennsylvania's educational status quo, there are some bright spots. There are, are excellent schools in Pennsylvania, excellent traditional public schools, uh, throughout different regions of the state. But that only represents a piece of the picture. There are sadly many, many public schools that are not doing a good job, where, where in fact uh, the kids are not proficient in any way in, in the basic skills of life, mathematics and reading, science, those things that are so important for them to advance. Um, and, and kids are falling behind every day. So we do have school choice programs in this state but we've got to make them more robust. For the EITC, the Educational Improvement Tax Credit, it's a very successful program, but it's capped by statute. And so even though there's, there's a long waiting list of, of children who want to get those EITC scholarships who may be in a failing school and want to have an alternative, they can't get them because it's capped. You have charter schools where they have a monopoly. The local school districts have a monopoly on creating any new charter schools, and generally they don't want to do that because it's competition for them and their, their uh, existing status quo. So – uh, we've got to create the independent authorizer so that, that uh, charter schools can start and compete and grow in Pennsylvania. We need to start making sure that our schools are accountable by creating some sort of a report card that the public can easily understand rather than complex looks into these, these formulas that look at performance on standardized tests and so forth in a way that becomes very opaque and hard to identify. Schools should get a grade just like kids get a grade. So A through F grades for performance in school so parents know what kind of a district that they're in and what kind of a uh, experience their, their students are likely to have. Well, Rebecca, from an educational standpoint, there are many jobs that we have available in Pennsylvania, very good, meaningful, family-sustaining jobs that don't require a four-year bachelor's degree. But that seems 
the, the, the four-year bachelor's degree seems to be the focus of our education system. Is there a disconnect? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great point. I think the emphasis in, in recent years on going to college really does neglect the good family-sustaining careers that don't require college degrees but can really lead to rewarding jobs right out of the gate. And I'm thinking of the great opportunities that exist in the trades. And it kind of gets to what Steve was just saying about uh, about report cards. Um, our, our high schools report the number of kids that go to college. They don't necessarily report the number of kids who succeed in going into trades, trade schools or careers. So um, you're going to succeed in the things that you measure. Um, and that's one area that maybe we want to think about how we measure. But um, when I think about trade trade careers, um, you know, I'm come back to the trucking industry. But the median salary for a truck driver last year was seventy thousand dollars. That was up eighteen percent from the previous year, um, and that's in part due to you know the the supply and demand of um, truck drivers in the nation. We we have a truck driver shortage right now, but those careers are really in demand. Those jobs are in demand. Um, diesel techs in Pennsylvania are really in demand. We're looking for those. Um, but it's not just in transportation. Like you said, um, Carl, there there are lots of great uh, careers that are available and in high demand that kids don't necessarily hear about as they're starting to think about their career choices. Now, I will say that I think it's starting to change a bit. We are starting to see that uh, kids, as they're uh, starting to young adults, I should say, as they're starting to think about their career choices, I think many young people now are starting to ask questions um, about what kind of return they're getting on their investment in those um, high-priced colleges and looking at student loans that they're going to have to take out. And I do think people are getting a little bit more, um, you know, curious about how those, um, you know, what kind of return they're going to get on that investment and asking questions. Thank you for listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, Carl Moreira, and joining me is Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Steve Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. We're talking about the Commonwealth Foundation's How to Create a Better Pennsylvania in 2023. So, Steve, next on the list is Unleash a More Prosperous Pennsylvania. Explain what you mean by this and what some good policies would be to create a more prosperous Pennsylvania. The Taxpayer Protection Act would be the number one thing. That would simply limit state government spending to the rate of inflation plus population change so that you would no longer have a runaway driver of costs like our state government has been for the last several decades. And when, when you look at the, the numbers, for example, if the Taxpayer Protection Act had been enacted back in 2003, the average Pennsylvania family would have 17000 additional dollars every year. And that, that, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for folks. Even with inflation, those are big numbers. And, and that is money that the government is, is spending rather than families having access to. We have right now a very complex, confusing system of corporate welfare in Pennsylvania, where certain businesses who have the right connections are getting assistance from the government. Others who don't have those connections are stuck paying extremely high corporate net income tax rates rates that are not competitive with other, with other states. And we'll talk about that a little further. But uh, another key thing is reducing the regulatory red tape that Pennsylvanians face. In, in my work uh, for the Commonwealth Foundation, I, I end up traveling the state quite a bit and talking to entrepreneurs. And a constant, constant complaint that I hear is that it is so much more costly and time-consuming to get basic permitting done here in Pennsylvania as compared to other states, even other states that aren't necessarily known to be uh, particularly economically friendly or at least friendlier than Pennsylvania. So you have, for example, the, the energy industry. When they go to work in Ohio or West Virginia, 
it is much easier for them to get the, ne- the necessary compliance and inspections and so forth that they need to, to open up their, their wells and their businesses. Whereas in Pennsylvania, it's a constant nightmare with, with ever uncertain costs and time that sometimes lags into years rather than months. The other key thing is to end the regional greenhouse gas initiative that Governor Wolf has unilaterally put Pennsylvania into, which puts us at a terrible disadvantage, basically a 30% increase in electric bills for consumers. And again, with, with inflation and the demands right now, the worst thing we can do is drive up energy costs unnecessarily for no particular economic benefit. Well, the third topic is the uh, protect the dignity of work. What's included there, Steve? In, in that category, we're talking about what you might normally think of as welfare reform, but it's more than just that. It is about empowering people to become successful and be able to have careers where they, they are independent of the need to rely on government. Work requirements for, for, for public welfare programs, uh, making sure that we're verifying that those who do get assistance from the government are in fact deserving of it by simply doing basic verification of their income and assets, uh, making uh, creating ideas that, that have been uh, tried in some other places successfully, such as human services tax credits, where you can kind of cut out government as the middleman, and companies, corporations, business people could make donations to charitable entities to, to serve the, the people who need help in their communities without going through the bureaucracy, uh, incentivizing that, expanding scope of practice for uh, nurse, practitioners, nurse practitioners who currently need a complex registration under the authority of physicians to practice in Pennsylvania that is driving up the cost of health care whereas these nurse practitioners are highly trained and can, can conduct themselves independently of that kind of certification, have done so in many other states, and we're hoping to see that, that in Pennsylvania to help uh, allow our workforce to be mobile, more mobilized and then indexing our unemployment compensation benefits to protect workers and our, our businesses. We only have a few minutes left and three more of these tenants to get to. Um, but next is is to make government more accountable and transparent. And this was a tenant of Governor Wolf that he ran on. But have things gotten more or less transparent in state government during this administration? And what ought to be done? Yeah, all we have to do is look at uh, what happened during the COVID lockdowns and, and the COVID uh, business restrictions that occurred. And, and uh, it happened without transparency. And it happened in a very... Uh, heavy-handed way that really impacted our businesses and our and our whole community. We need to privatize our wine and liquor sales in Pennsylvania. We've made some inroads there, but there's still plenty of work to do. And we just need to get state taxpayers out of the business of of running liquor stores and 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 uh, advertising uh, liquor in Pennsylvania. When uh, at the same time, on the other hand, they're they're advertising against drinking liquor. So it's it's a an age-old problem. We've got to get rid of that system, and we've got to modernize our election laws. All right. Fifth is to prioritize resources for safer safer communities. Criminal justice reform is a focus of both Republicans and Democrats. But one of the things we've often heard suggested is to defund the police. Is that happening in certain areas and what has been the impact? And what does the Commonwealth Foundation call for in your report? Well, well, certainly at the Commonwealth Foundation, we are not in favor of defunding police. We We are absolutely in favor of making the system operate in a way that creates the least amount of crime and the least, about, least amount of recidivism. One of the, one of the most uh, urgent areas for, for reform is in the juvenile justice system, where right now Pennsylvania is, is putting more first-time youthful offenders into an a institutional setting rather than a community setting, and that's actually statistically creating more repeat offenders by doing that. So we can take steps to make our communities face safer in that regard, and then we need to make sure that, that uh, those who have served their time and, and, and paid their debt to society aren't prevented from getting gainful employment when they leave prison. 
So those are two key areas where we can actually make our society safer by doing important criminal justice reform measures. Great. And finally, the topic of restoring the public sector workers' rights. Explain what you mean by this. Well, in Pennsylvania, we have extremely powerful public sector unions, that is, uh, unions that represent state workers, whether it be teachers, government bureaucrats, liquor store clerks in the in the state-run liquor stores, uh, and they are extremely influential politically. They generate dues in many case at many cases uh, into the millions of dollars that they spend directly in, in political purposes, and they are often trying to thwart the rest of those things we just talked about, the things we need need to do to make Pennsylvania more prosperous. So we are looking at making sure that first of all. That unions do not have special privileges, state government unions do not have special privileges to use the state resources of, of uh, the payroll system to deduct union dues directly. If people want to be in a union, by all means they can, but they should be writing their own checks to pay for that. Uh, the, the, uh, making sure that people understand the, what is happening with collective bargaining agreements that are being reached. Right now, much of that is done in the dark. High payments are agreed to, terms are agreed to with public sector unions that the public has never even heard about. And by the time they do hear about them, it's too late because they're already signed into law. So we need transparency in collective bargaining. We need to make sure that workers always have a, a chance to elect to be in their own union. Uh, many of the unions that, that exist now in Pennsylvania, these public sector unions, were started back in the 1960s or 1970s, and none of the current employees ever even voted to unionize. And also folks who are in a union need to be given the opportunity to resign if they wish to and not be coerced to stay in the unions by right to resign provisions that that only give them 15 days at the end of a two-year contract to resign. Well, Steve, thank you for all of these points. And I'm hopeful that maybe uh, some gubernatorial uh, state Senate or state House members might be listening that can actually put some of these great ideas into place. But Rebecca, where can listeners go to learn more about your work at the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association? They can find us at pmta.org. And Steve, where can the listeners go to learn more about the Commonwealth Foundation and specifically this extensive and informative 23-point policy platform that you've shared with us today? Carl, they can go to commonwealthfoundation.org and there's a banner up at the top for the Better Pennsylvania in 2023 plan. And you can find out more about the work of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association at pamanufacturers.org. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, Carl. If you know where you are going, you will find the gravel path that leads across a field to a grove of trees with a plot of land surrounded by a brick wall secured by an iron gate. The plot is overgrown with weeds, and at the far end there is an unkempt, grimy tombstone. In large letters is the name Madison. And so, in this lowly estate, lies the remains of America's fourth president, James Madison, and his wife, Dolly. Their final resting place is Montpelier, the Virginia estate on which the Madisons lived. Sadly, the historic site treats the Founding Fathers' legacy in the same shabby manner that surrounds his gravesite. Over the past year, my son and I, along with a couple of friends, have visited George Washington's Mount Vernon, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, and Montpelier. The short video that orients visitors to Montpelier offers little insight into James Madison's contributions to our nation's history. Instead, it focused on what can only be described as critical race theory. 
Madison, often referred to as the father of the Constitution, was a major contributor to the Federalist Papers, which aided in its ratification. He presented the Virginia Plan to the convention, which laid the groundwork for the three branches of government we have today. Madison provided for a legislature divided into two houses. His plan called for representatives of both to be determined by population. The later Connecticut Compromise resulted in the current system of each state having two U.S. senators regardless of population and the House of Representatives apportioned by population. A trade dispute with Great Britain escalated into the War of 1812 during Madison's presidency, resulting in British troops invading Washington and setting fire to both the Capitol building and the White House, which was then known as the President's Mansion. That the United States was able to fight to an effective standstill against the world's greatest power heightened the nation's prestige abroad and instilled national pride at home. Brenda Hefera of the Heritage Foundation has written an excellent research paper entitled A Tale of Three Presidential Houses, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Mount Vernon wins praise for having the most balanced presentation of George Washington's life and times. Monticello offers somewhat of a mixed bag, but it is Montpelier that veers into full-fledged revisionism. If you want to learn anything about James Madison's historical contributions during a visit to Montpelier, you have to look hard. Afera writes, quote, There is a palpable lack of education about Madison's ideas and contributions to the American Republic. Visitors could leave Montpelier knowing much about slavery— and little about Madison and his great work as America's political philosopher. She continues, The exhibit on the Constitution, located in the cellars of the Father of the Constitution, focuses on slavery rather than on the meaning and significance of the Constitution or Madison's role in shaping it. The exhibit is often misleading as it does not contextualize certain facts or compromises and does not recognize that the founders purposefully avoided recognizing slaves as property in the Constitution. It gets worse. An 11-minute film on slavery is filled with, quote, images of protesters carrying signs saying, Stop police brutality, I can't breathe, Black Lives Matter, and others waving Confederate flags. All of this designed to provoke an emotional response to the issues of the day while laying blame on the founding fathers. The so-called historical site has become a propaganda arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, an ultra-left-wing organization devoted to rewriting American history to fit its ideological views on race and racism. Last year, the board of the Montpelier Foundation, which operates the Madison Homestead, was essentially taken over by critical race theorists. This is not to say that a discussion of slavery in its proper context is not important. As Hefera explains, quote, CRT posits that slavery and racism define America, elevating them as driving forces of our history rather than properly placing them as tragic elements that contradict our principles. What has happened at Montpelier is a national disgrace. Worse, it supplants history with a radical ideology. As Afera concluded in her paper, quote, The origin story of any nation holds a special place in its history. But America's founding is perhaps even more essential to understanding the American ethos. 
We are not a nation built on ethnicity or religion, but one united by principles, those of our founding. Our reciprocal duty is the watchful guarding of those principles and that character. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years now, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth. They include WFRJ-FM in Winbur, WROV-FM in Ridgeway, along with WRYV-FM in State College, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program, those of the guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.